The Lord is the one who saves us. And as we read there, he continues to keep us, his steadfast love. And uh, just a good to be together this morning again. Good to be able to worship the Lord. I see you guys all looking up there. You're trying to read ahead, trying to figure out what direction we're going in this morning. A little bit of a change in direction, but let's, let's uh, just continue to worship the Lord as we've been doing. Always very thankful for the folks who lead our worship. Um, sometimes I think they don't know how much they're allowing God to direct them just as we sang through that stuff. Just ca- I just kept seeing, man, this is perfect as far as the direction we're going in. But even just the opportunity to sing and uh, glorify God, um, focus on Him. He is good. He's, he is a great God and Jesus Christ is our Savior. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment that we can share together in this week to uh, just worship you. We pray that it will come from hearts that are filled with a recognition of who you are. Hearts that are continuing to learn about the depth of your love for us. And Lord, we, we realize that we're, we're crossing into difficult territory just trying to understand you as, as, as God, as an eternal and almighty God. And so we pray for your help, your uh, your your just patience with us and we pray that we be able to exalt your name this morning as we've sung and exalt your name through our study of your word and uh, lord as we come to this all-important time of the year for us this uh, period of time we call easter we pray that we would even more so be able to understand how you have expressed your love to us how you made a covenant with us through the blood of your Son. And so, Lord, just lead us now as we are here together uh, as a congregation. And may we collectively uh, be able to honor your name even in this time of study. We pray this in your Son's name, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So just for a little bit of a review, because I think reviews are important, uh, we're going to think about last week. We learned that when we understand who is in charge, everything makes sense. Do you remember that part? Uh, God is the authority. It's not that uh, everything is easy, but everything becomes simple. It, it makes sense. Uh, who is in authority? Um, what the ethic is, what is right and wrong, and, and what our approach is to life. We ask those three questions. Who do you fear? What is right and wrong? And how should we live? And we saw the truth of all of this displayed in a role reversal between two men, Abraham and Abimelech. Remember that? And I say it was a role reversal because... The man who God had chosen, the man who had a relationship with God, Abraham, he messed up. He was fearing man, not God. He was afraid of the people around him. And because of that, remember, he started telling half-truths, lying. And, and he sort of expressed, this is how you know, we're scheming to sort of get along, me and my wife. We decided we're going to tell this lie in order to survive. And, and you say, that's, that's messed. 
And we realize it's not us as people that are, we're so great and we've got things all figured out. It's about our relationship with God. And so even that king, Abimelech, that pagan king, God revealed himself dramatically in that dream. And all of a sudden, Abimelech went, whoa, this is God? And he feared God. And because he feared God, he was the one who was, he was correcting Abraham in terms of ethics. And he says, no, people shouldn't treat one another like that. He was almost giving them a little sermon about how he should be honest and honorable. And in the end, Abimelech, because he knew who God was, Abimelech was ready to submit before God, even though Abraham was wronger. Right? You remember the word? Abraham was guiltier, but it wasn't important to Abimelech. Abimelech said, I'm going to do everything before God that is right. And, and he was a happier guy, too. It just seemed like it just, it just made sense. And so it was a great, a great lesson, I think, for, for all of us, for me, uh, just about the authority of God and moral absolutes and and an attitude of submission toward God, first of all. Well, speaking of getting our priorities right, this week we're beginning to prepare for Easter. We're stepping away from Genesis for a little bit, and we just need to focus on the cross, on Christ, and everything uh, that that is. This is a high point for our religious calendar. That sounds very official when I say it that way. Uh, But the cross is central, isn't it? The cross is central, a central event, not just in the scripture, but the life of Christ and what he did on the cross is is central to all of history. And you know, we even even recognize that in the way our our dates are are recorded. You know, we got the BC and the, the AD going on. Uh, B.C. is before the time of Christ. And A.D., well, we, we coined the phrase after death, but it's really uh, a Latin term that means the year of our Lord. Everything after Christ came in terms of our history in this world is different. So it's the year of our Lord, 2021. But you know they're changing that. They're calling this the common era. Man, wouldn't you rather live in the year of our Lord than in the common era? But this is how you know the world continues to try and, and sweep out of the way any reference that brings us to God and face to face with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to focus on Jesus Christ. We, above all others, we need to have a recognition, a proper understanding, a proper focus on Him. And that's what we're going to be doing starting just maybe a week early. But, you know, I always find it difficult to preach on Easter. Because it's, it's hard enough to preach at any time. Because when you, when you start to preach on a theme or a topic or a subject, you know, there's so many different directions that you can go in. You start to look at a theme in one part of Scripture, and all of a sudden, 
your mind makes connections or you think of passages or the Google search takes you in a direction that says, oh, what about this scripture? What about this scripture? And so really a preacher's job, it's hard because you're trying to limit yourself to just what God wants you to say on that day. And maybe you're saying, Steve, you need to work harder at limiting yourself and not saying too much. But this is what happens and especially, especially when you talk about the cross of Christ. Because you know that every passage we touch on somehow can lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there's this great interconnection. So if you start with the cross of Jesus Christ, where do you stop? I mean, you can go in so many different directions. It, there's this enormous amount of possibilities this infinite trail and and you could start in any place and so as i come to this time of the year i sort of go whoa where 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 do we go where should we go and as i prayed about this i trust i was led by the lord uh for a, a direction in our study this week and as as you see i came to first corinthians Two, two, where Paul limits himself. Paul says, this is what it's all about. This is the direction we need to go in. This is where we need to focus. And it's still too big, but he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do you know as I start to read that and just sort of meditate it on it, meditate on it a little bit, it was kind of funny because I, I thought, well, this sounds familiar. This statement that Paul is making, it kind of sounds familiar. It follows a, a flow that I've seen before, I've heard before outside of the scripture. And you know, we're all familiar with what they say when they're swearing somebody in as a witness in court. Not because we've been there, probably, because of TV shows and movies, and you know, we've heard that. And you know what they say? They say, you know, raise, raise your right hand. I think it's your right hand. Put the left hand on the Bible. And then they say, do you promise what? To tell the truth. You guys haven't been to court, have you? None of you have been witnesses? Or you just don't watch TV? Help me out here. Do you promise to tell the truth? The whole truth. This is what Paul's saying here. Well, there you go. <laughs> this guy's been to court. <laughs> no, this is, this is it. This is, this is what Paul is saying in this case. He's saying, but he, he does it in a little different order, but he says, I'm going to talk about the truth, Jesus Christ, the whole truth, the crucifixion part, the nasty part, the part that the people don't want to look at, they don't want to talk about, and he says, I'm not going to talk about anything else. And so what he starts with is this nothing else. He kind of reverses it all around. And so let's, let's start by reading verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, And I, 
Paul is recounting when he came to Corinth first to preach to them, to bring the gospel. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, so we understand there's a church there. There are people who are following Jesus Christ. These are the people who, who've heard, heard the gospel and they're gathering together. They're a congregation. So he's calling them brothers. And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming you to you, or sorry, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's pretty bold, isn't it? You think of Paul moving into a new area to preach. And all he says, I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to come into this city and I'm just going to preach Christ crucified. You know, Paul didn't always do that. We see him following different, uh, I guess, trajectories in terms of his, his approach and coming into a place. You all remember what happened in Acts chapter 17 where he was in Athens, where he went to Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Do you remember what happened there? He went and he saw all of the altars. And he wandered around till he got to one of the altars. And he led in as he spoke to these people with a reference to their religiousness. I see you guys are, are religious people. And I see that there's this altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you about that unknown God. And it's sort of like this, wow, great transition into sharing the gospel with them. And he even quotes a little Greek poetry for them. Some of their poems, secular poems. Just to sort of get the people, you know what? You guys have a respect for God. I see that in your poetry and they'd be going, nodding their heads along. Well, yeah, that's, that's us. That's our culture. And then he gently leads them into an understanding of an almighty, absolute, holy God who would judge the world in righteousness through the one who came into the world, died and rose again. That's Acts 17 down in verse 31. And so we see in that situation how Paul comes in and he, he uses the setting. He, he tries to bridge a gap between where those people are and the cross. And he tries to sort of lead them there. I think about that. I think that's sort of the route I take when I, I try and talk with people, especially people I don't know about Christ. It happened twice on Friday once in a garage uh, in Canadian Tire and the other time just with a neighbor. And you start to ask people questions like, oh, so where do you go to church? Do you go to church? And you hope that, you know, in, in bringing that up, you'll get a sense of where they're at, the way they think, and, and then be able to bring them to Christ. And I think, yeah, that's, that's it's a plausible route. But sometimes you get sidetracked along the way. Sometimes they shut a door and you're not able to get to the truth. 
sometimes I probably just don't do a good enough job of, of taking them to where we should be going in the conversation. But you know, Paul doesn't take any chances when it comes to uh, the Corinthian people when he came into that city. He doesn't even try and dress up, he says, I didn't try and dress up the message with any sort of eloquence. I mean, that's sometimes, you know, what people do is they think if I can talk with flowery, pleasing speech or can impress people with my wisdom, my eloquence. I remember one time, a couple of years ago, I was preaching at a church in, in Toronto. I'd never been there before. Uh, have not been back and probably will never end up being back there. But I, I preached and after the service, this woman came up to me and she says, you have an excellent preaching voice. I sort of didn't know how to take that. What, what does that mean? But you know, in case you think I get too proud, that was the same woman who, when she thought I should have been wrapping up the message, tapped her watch and looked at me. So, I mean, there's, there's no, no pride in that. But, but you know, sometimes it's, it's eloquence. Sometimes that's what people are looking for. They're looking for, you know, someone who can speak well. And sometimes I think preachers can get caught up in that how am I going to say this in a great way in a way that people will appreciate what I'm saying or how I'm saying it but not Paul in Corinth he says before (laughs) before I lose their attention before their 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 attention span runs out I I'm going to go straight to Jesus Christ Straight to the gospel, straight to Christ being crucified. And I think, well, maybe it was because Corinth was such a mess. You know, we understand a bit about the culture of that time. They were a a kind of a transition town, people traveling through, transporting products, a lot of things being bought and sold. We know it was a mess. How things can be in those, those sort of areas where people are just traveling through, or a lot of people are traveling through. And so he wanted to get the truth in there before he he lost their attention. There was a lot of competition, I guess, there. And this is our problem, isn't it? We get distracted. This is Satan's plan, isn't it? (laughs) He wants to distract us. He says, if I can keep their attention divided, not on the truth, not fully on the central truth, truth then I've won there's so many warnings in scripture about that aren't there we think back to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 the sower spreads the good seed and some of it lands there by the wayside and those those birds which represent the evil one come and boom it's gone or some of it lands in that thorny ground, which we're told are the cares of the world, which choke out the power of the gospel, the good seed. Because of distraction, because we're, we're thinking about other things. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, 
They choke it out. It becomes unfruitful, we read. We know there are distractions. Matthew 6.24 talks, while Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. John tells us in his first letter, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny. Deny ourselves. Lay down our lives. That part of us that is naturally connected to this world that is concerned first of all with all that happens in this world that affects us. Christ says to the one who has everything, all his, his needs are taken care of. Remember the rich young ruler? What's he tell him? Go. Sell everything. Get rid of the distraction. It's become too big a distraction. Go sell everything. Come and follow me. Get focused. On me, Jesus says. What about those who don't have everything? No, we would think we fit in that category. You know the parables that Jesus told about the man who sees that incredible treasure in the field? Go sell all that you have. Buy the field. Or what about the pearl of great price? Same thing. Sell out on everything for that which is of incredible, infinite value. We need to readjust our thinking, don't we? When it comes to what it is that we value. What it is that is all important. That has a value that is above everything else. It's transcendent in priority. Leagues above anything else. That thing that has value, absolute value, on into eternity. You say, well, hey, we're, we're part of the church here. Why are you saying this to us? Because we, too, have problems with distractions. We can get off track, and I'm not talking necessarily about illicit distractions, things that we would say, oh, that's, that's horrible, that's sin. Sometimes they're good things. Good responsibilities. But they take priority in our thinking. Priority above Jesus Christ. And they will take priority above Jesus Christ naturally if we don't consider, think about how Christ should be first. If we don't take that time on a daily basis to bring our attention back to who He is 
and what that means. And that's what Paul says to these people. I decided not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ. None of the other distractions. You know, I, I, I was brought back to this and just thinking about it this morning. I, I heard a clip. Some of you know, maybe all of you know, about that guy named Jordan Peterson, right? Guy who has been... I guess, building a philosophy of life using the scriptures. I mean, he goes back to the scriptural narrative, the especially Old Testament stories, and he uses their wisdom. And we've sort of been praying for him, praying that God would get a hold of his life because he seems so close. But when he's challenged, when he's asked, are you a Christian? He always says, uh, no, I can't say that I'm a Christian. Well, there's a little piece of an interview came out um, just in the last uh, in the last few weeks where someone's talking to him about Jesus Christ, and he's talking about it, and he's not sure he can get beyond. You know, he says there was a historical figure, but maybe this is a myth. But then he says everything seems to come together, and he starts to weep. And he talks about how Jesus Christ has made a difference in his life. Now, I'm not saying he has come to the place where he's ready to profess belief in Christ as his Savior. But he understands. He says there are all these other mythical figures who apparently died and rose again. He's talking about it, he's talking about the resurrection. But he's saying there's something more. Jesus Christ was a a historical figure. And he's not sure, he's not sure he's ready to say that he actually died and rose again. But he is saying that Christ has impacted his life in some way. And he says this, He says, I don't know what would happen to someone if they really believe that. I don't know what would happen if somebody really believed that Jesus Christ was really their Savior, that he came into the world, that he died and he rose again. Do you know what? We're supposed to be the testimony of that, aren't we, in the world? If you're anything like me, you you feel a little ashamed at this point in time. Because you go, yeah, what would that look like? (laughs) Man, we should be taking more time to focus on this. Really focus. Here's a man who seems to have all the understanding up front And he hasn't taken that step. But he realizes it's a huge step. He realizes how transformational Jesus Christ is. And we say, have we gotten used to this? You know, have we sort of gotten used to living with 
yeah, maybe, maybe we're saved. Maybe we know who Christ is. Maybe we believe in his death and resurrection. But if we got gotten used to living down a, a dumbed-down version of the Christian life? Or are we still going forward in terms of learning how to serve him better? Growing closer in our relationship with him. This is what, who it's all about. Jesus Christ. The truth. This is who Paul came proclaiming to the Corinthian people in the beginning. And this is who he's still presenting now as he's writing this letter to them, hoping to get them back on track. Because you probably all have a little bit of an understanding about this letter. And you know, we can say that the um, Corinthian culture was messed. Well, it seems like the culture has bled into the congregation. And as we read through this book, you can just read through it quickly, you understand, whoa, the church itself had some severe issues. More issues than Vanity Fair, right? I've heard that joke, they said more issues than Vogue, but I thought Vanity Fair made more sense in terms of the church setting. They had a lot of issues. And it's interesting, as you go through this, even reading the first chapter, you see Paul saying, no worries. You know, you've got these problems, but Jesus Christ is the solution. He's not just the way, the truth, and the life in terms of, oh, he's the only way to the Father. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll take care of everything in the end. You go to heaven. But he's saying he's the final answer for every step of our life. All of the issues we face. Just like in Genesis chapter 21 last week. If you get the priority in place, everything else will find its place. And you can work down through that first, uh, first chapter and you start to see, Wow. It's incredible. He tells them how to live, but it's always coming back to Jesus Christ. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. Christ is most important. He has to be in first place. And he sorts out church politics, cultural, dis, culturally distinct perspectives, categories of people, and arrives here at con, the content of our preaching. The answer to each one of those things? Jesus Christ. Not a pat answer. Not an answer that's sort of like, oh, you know, we just talk about Jesus. But no, Jesus Christ is the answer. And where, where the Corinthian church was having disunity, struggles, you know, uh, we're with Apollos, we're with Paul. Oh no, we're with Jesus Christ. He says it's not an either or, it's not a decision between, it is Christ who we're all to be following. He's the one who, who brings us together in unity. Is Christ divided? He asks. And when it's, you know, different cultures, well, you know, the Jews, they're looking for a sign. And the Greeks, they want wisdom. Need these culturally distinct perspectives. 
says, no, it's about Christ. He's the answer. He ends up offending the Jews, and he offends the Greeks. It's not wisdom as to the wisdom of the world, and it's not just any sign that the Jews want either. It's Christ. It's the crucifixion. That's how we come to God. And, and then he talks about not many noble are called. You know, you can have rich and poor and all different categories of people, but the whole point is, are you in Christ? Cuts away all the differences. And this is what he's saying. I'm preaching about Jesus Christ. Simply Him. And we think, how relevant is that teaching for us today? We look around us and we see the conflicts over politics, philosophy, cultures, categories. Paul says there's only one truth, one message that will make sense out of this whole mess. And it's Jesus Christ. Not just a partial understanding, though. He is the final and complete answer. God's Son come into history to bring us salvation. It's sort of interesting, that tag at the end of the verse. I decided not to know, or to, to know nothing, sorry, among you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why that tag? Why the and Him crucified? Why not just say Jesus? Well, the answer must be taken completely. Anyone can accept a Jesus who's a great teacher, who presents a wonderful philosophy of life, who went about doing good, miracles of restoration, in people's lives. Everyone wants a piece of that action, don't we? A Jesus who's busy fixing our problems and helping this world to be a nicer place. But when we read the whole story, we come to the crucifixion. And we have to come to terms with this fact that if Jesus was just coming to make this world a nicer place, to fix all our problems, he failed. Or we have to think his purpose was much different. Much different than the one that's so acceptable to our mind that he was trying to make everything better and nicer. He didn't just come to fix the world. He did not come to fix our problems. He came to fix us. And when we think of a crucifixion, of Christ going to the cross, of His sacrifice, we're brought face to face with that fact. And that's not something that's comfortable, that's nice for any of us, is it? You're wrong. You need fixing. But that's essentially what we come to. We either have to take uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and say, 
It was a myth. Or we have to try and figure out what it means. Not just to the world. Not just to us personally over the span of our lives, but what it means to us, for us, on a daily basis. <laughs> it's not just, oh yeah, everything's done. Theologically it is. It is finished on the cross, yes. But practically, Christ is here to fix you today. <laughs> He's here to fix me today, to get me back on track. And it's only in relationship with the crucified Christ that I can ever hope to do anything of value in this day. And we we struggle with that, don't we? But it's not a struggle of getting up and saying, what would Jesus do today? And I'm going to try and do it. No, it's coming face to face with the crucified and risen Lord. First thing. First thing, and I know you say, some of you say, I, I, you know, mine's not clear in the morning. Ah, it's the type of person you are. But I mean, there has to be some sort of priority set in terms of our relationship with Christ. Everything has to start with him. And I feel like I'm a weak enough person that if I don't start with him at the beginning of the day, there's never any hope of me getting back to him. At those times when things get a little confusing, life starts to come apart. And so we, we, we take time and we think about Christ crucified. We think about why God had to come into the world and be slain in order to fix the problem. To fix us. Years ago, in an English newspaper, somebody wrote an editorial, What is Wrong with the World? And there's a famous writer called G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a lot of poetry, a number of books. He was a Christian man. He responded to the editorial. And he wrote back, Dear Sir, I am G.K. Chesterton. And you think about that. Do we understand? And this is what we come face to face with when we look at the cross, that we are the problem and that Jesus Christ, who died, who was buried, who rose again, is the answer. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You can see it on the screen up there in front of you. I think it's still up there. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I've got it in the NIV, not because I prefer that translation, but because it, when you take that verse out of context, 
It doesn't actually say God at the first of it. It says he made him. It just makes it a little more clear. But I'd like us to focus on this verse for the next couple of weeks. Not in the preaching, but in our own lives. I know I've never asked you to do this before, but how are your memorization skills? They're nowhere, right? But you can memorize. We all can. Sometimes it takes us a little longer. And don't think that, oh, Steve has it easy. He's a good memorizer because most of the stuff I've got up here was captured when I was a little kid. And nowadays it just seems to slip out the other ear or something like that. But think about that. I want us to to focus on this verse and I'd like us to take time to memorize it. Not simply for the sake of saying, ah, I've got a verse memorized. But because when we do that, hopefully we'll meditate a little more on the truth of what it's saying. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the whole truth. It's not just a a candy-coated half-truth about Jesus. This is the whole truth. The identity of Jesus Christ is foundational. His atonement is an imperative. His resurrection is essential. And we must believe these things. Believe in our heart and confess with our mouths, as Paul says in Romans 10.9. An inward acknowledgement that results in outward action. Real belief. Not one of us, practically, has come to the place where we can say, hey, I'm living that out perfectly in my life. We're all still in process In terms of capturing that idea. Knowing our Savior. And living our life as a reflection of that relationship. You and I, we're all all struggling with it. But we're not going to go forward with it unless we are spending time thinking about it. Thinking with Him about it and so this verse might help us understand more completely this truth and it might result in a more complete transformation born out of a work that god initiated in your life and that god wants to complete god will complete it but we need to be working alongside with him so for the next times that we are together over this Holy Week, as they call it in some places, uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. I'm going to seek to preach about nothing else, only Christ crucified. We're going to try and deal with three questions, and that'll be how I'll try and limit myself. Why did Jesus have to come? 
next week, next Sunday. Why did he have to come? Why did Jesus have to die? That'll be Good Friday. And then finally, why did Jesus have to rise again? And we will um, be working on, I trust, in, in your own hearts and minds and lives, uh, considering Christ. Christ who was crucified for you. Memorizing a verse. Meditating on that truth. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, inadequate. We are inadequate. My words are inadequate. Our Abilities are inadequate to properly glorify you. But we know that you have promised to come to us, to transform us, to work in our lives, and to make us adequate vessels of worship who can have a relationship with you, who are transformed and being transformed. a mysterious process one that not one of us can say we understand completely we get muddled up in the middle of it and yet Lord we, we come before you this morning and we profess a willingness to be changed by you we want to show that willingness by engaging in the process, by seeking you in your word, by spending time in prayer and meditation on you. And Lord, I pray that you would just work in our hearts and minds, helping this, this central time of focus for us as followers of Jesus Christ. This season, helping us to use it as a time to draw near, a time to understand more, a time to honor you in a special way. Lord, lead us. Lead us in this and help us to become more like you would have us be. more like the image of Christ, more of the image of Christ in our lives. Because of your salvation and by the power of your spirit dwelling within us, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.